0: Uh, Father, I I thank you for uh, the week that myself and others have had up at this uh, Reach Australia conference. Uh, We thank you for the vision uh, of bringing together uh, various movements from around the country. And we just pray that uh, you would indeed uh, bless that and and we would see uh, many, many tens of thousands of people coming to know our Lord Jesus. uh, That his name might be honoured and praised uh, all the more. Our uh, Father, we pray uh, that, uh, in, uh, that you would bring about good fruit from our recent series. Uh, we praise you for the good fruit that has already come about, for people who are keen to become members, uh, to get baptised, uh, to think through how we can do Lord's, uh, the Lord's Supper together as a church family. Father, we do pray that you would keep bringing about that good fruit that brings honour and praise to you, and uh, keep helping us to have uh, godly and respectful conversations with one another where points of difference might still lie. Uh, Father, we pray now that as we come to your word and as we explore this topic of experiencing the Spirit, uh, that you would uh, help me to speak faithfully and clearly, that you would help us all to be uh, attentive uh, to the voice of your Spirit as we hear uh, him through your word. And we pray, Father, that you would uh, open our eyes afresh to see the great wonders of the gospel. Uh, For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Uh, So yeah, we are looking at this, uh, in the middle of this series on the Holy Spirit. Uh, Last week, uh, Adam uh, spoke on the personhood and divinity of the Holy Spirit. Establishing, uh, if you can remember, uh, that the Holy Spirit uh, is a person, uh, not just some force. And I'm sure Adam had some fun with that as a kind of uh, sci-fi guy and a Star Wars fan. So uh, the Holy Spirit is a person, not a force. uh, And the Holy Spirit is God, not just some lesser being. Right, but this week, uh, we're really asking the question, how is it that we can relate to this divine person of the Spirit? Right? How, how can we experience the power of God's Spirit? What is a, I mean, What does a Christian look like who's experiencing the power of God's Spirit? Maybe some different things pop into your mind. When you think about that question, well, what does a church look like that's experiencing the power of God's Spirit? A Spirit-filled church, what would that church look like? How do you as a Christian, how do we as a church, uh, experience the power of God's Spirit? How do those things happen? Lots of things could be said about those things, and and in the coming weeks, I am going to say more things than I say today. But today, I wanted to focus on three main things. You can see them in the outline on the inside of the Connect card. Uh, I'm going to say that we experience God's Spirit in His Word, in the Gospel, and in being deeply assured that we are His dearly loved children. Three main ways that we experience God's Spirit in His Word, in the Gospel, and in being deeply assured of His love for us uh, as our Heavenly Father. Uh, So first, let's look at this idea that we experience God's Spirit in His Word. Uh, I think this is important uh, because uh, I think some people kind of uh, treat God's Spirit and His Word as if they're completely separate. You, know, you can either be uh, a Spirit Christian or a Word Christian. You can either uh, have a church that's full of the Holy Spirit or, or a church that's full of God's Word, uh, a worship church or a teaching church. I don't, know, I don't know if you've heard these kind of polarization type things. And maybe there's some truth in some of those things, but the, but the fact is uh, that in the Bible, God's Spirit and Word always work together. Uh, I saw something of this uh, uh, this kind of mindset of splitting God's Spirit in, in, uh, and His Word uh, a number of years ago when I was leading a Bible study, uh, when I was working in university student ministry, and I distinctly remember a student saying to me uh, something along the lines of, uh, yep, yeah, yeah, sure, God can speak to us through the Bible. But then there's how God really speaks to us. Now, I'm sure, God can speak to us, though, but, but, but really what we've got to listen for uh, is that the kind of the, the leading of the Spirit, the still small voice of the Spirit, that, that, that kind of idea. Uh, but the Bible always puts God's spirit and word together. It doesn't separate them like we tend to do so. So I'm just going to go through a few different passages to try and establish that idea. If you've got a Bible, you might want to open to the very start of the Bible. It should be pretty easy to find, uh, even if you're not familiar with flicking around the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 to 5, for the very opening words of the Bible. Uh, Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. Let's look here how God's Spirit and Word work together. Uh, Genesis 1. Uh, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God... You see that? The Spirit of God, that's the Hebrew word ruach. I like saying that because it's a bit guttural, you know, ruach. But throughout the Bible, it could be translated as the wind of God or or the breath of God. I think they get it right here. This is the Spirit of God that's hovering over the waters. So we've got the Spirit of God. And then look in verse 3. We've got the Word of God. And God said, let there be light and there was light. God saw that the light was good and he separated the light from the darkness. God uh, called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning, the first day. Right, so there's lots of details there. We're not going to look at it. Uh, but the, the, the question is how did God create the heavens and the earth? How did God create all physical life as, he, as we know it? He did it by the power of his spirit and word working together. The Word of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, brought into being everything. We experience God's Spirit in His Word. It's there, right from the opening pages of the Bible. We see the same thing uh, in Ezekiel's vision, in Ezekiel chapter 37. A little bit trickier to find, uh, if you're not familiar with the Bible. But uh, if you open up a Bible uh, roughly at the middle, uh, you fair chance you'll land in the Psalms or Isaiah. Flick on a few books from there. Uh, eventually you'll come to Ezekiel. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 37, Uh, a wonderful vision that Ezekiel has. Ezekiel's a prophet of God, and uh, if you uh, get to Ezekiel chapter 37, you'll see there in verses 1 and 2 uh, that Ezekiel's kind of caught up in God's spirit, and he's having a dream, a, a vision of some sort. And in the vision, he sees a valley of dry bones... Uh, If you've got the passage open, you you look down in verse 11 and you'll see that these dry bones give us a a picture of the spiritual condition of God's people. God's people are spiritually dry. In fact, they're dead. God's people, Israel, need new life. Uh, So look in verse 3. God says to Ezekiel, uh, son of man, can these bones live? And you can know, like the subtext, Ezekiel's kind of like, well, it doesn't look good, God. Uh, but he does say, Our sovereign Lord, you alone know. Right? All things are possible for you, is the vibe here. So in verse 4, God says, Prophesy to these bones. Say to these bones, Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Hey, isn't that funny? Here's God's people that need new spiritual life. And, and what does God say? He says, Preach to them. Speak to the bones. let the bones hear the word of the Lord. And what's the word of the Lord? We'll look in verse five. God says, "I will make breath enter you." Same word as Genesis one. I will make Ruach enter you. I'll make my spirit enter you, God says, and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Genesis 1, how does God create all physical life? He does it by the power of his spirit and word working together. Ezekiel 37, how does God create new spiritual life? He does it through the power of His Spirit and Word working together. Prophesy to these bones that I will make breath enter, enter, enter into you. Enter, enter into you? That's a few too many intos. Oh, so we, uh, we're building this picture. We experience God's Spirit through His Word. Uh, then flick into the New Testament, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. Uh, some of you might have heard this verse before. Uh, Paul's writing to Timothy. Uh, and he says to Timothy uh, in verse 16 All scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. saying, all, all scripture has been breathed out by God, Paul's saying. And we, we understand that, that when we speak, uh, it's like our breath uh, kind of conditioned by our words uh, comes out sorry our breath conditioned by our minds comes out in words that's kind of how it works Uh, and so that's what Paul's saying happens with the Bible God has personally breathed out every single word of the Bible it's not like he's not saying that the Bible was there and then God breathed his spirit into it No, he's, he's saying that every single word of the Bible is chock full of God's spirit Individually breathed out by God. So we experience God's spirit in his word. Not separate to his word. Now I think that's just a useful principle to bear in mind in general. But I think it has particular implications for how we make decisions in life. How is it uh, that we uh, receive God's guidance in life? Isn't it true that all of us, uh, from time to time, maybe in a big picture sense, where we're thinking, uh, what is God's will for my life? And then as different situations come up, we're thinking, what's God's will for me in this situation? And we're trying to discern God's will. Often we're quite fearful in that situation, aren't we? It's a little bit like if I choose this path, then it's going to lead to kind of eternal paradise and everything's going to be wonderful. But if I choose this path, it it could be horrendous, right? So so we're kind of uh, filled with anxiety, like I I don't want to get it wrong. Should I do this course at university or maybe I should do a different course or or maybe I shouldn't be at uni at all? Should I uh, marry this person? Should I stay single? Maybe that's what God wants for me. Should I take this new job or or stay in my current job? Should I stay in this city or this suburb or or, or move to another city or another suburb? We're faced with all these different choices. And at some point in the mix of that, I reckon we're asking, uh, we're we're listening for the voice of God, aren't we? We're, we're, We're looking for some guidance you could say we're looking for the leading of God's Spirit, the voice of God's Spirit. And that's a great thing to do, but the question is how do we hear God's Spirit? I think most of us, uh, in a dominant sense, uh, do two different things. Uh, on the one hand, uh, most of us uh, are looking for a particular sort of peace in our hearts about a decision. I don't know if this is true for you, but you're kind of uh, in that state of of flux and anxiety and fear, and then you're thinking, well, when when I land on the right decision, I'll really feel at peace about it. Now, I'm not dissing that. Like God can actually legitimately, of course, give us peace uh, about a particular decision that is a, a wise and godly decision. Uh, But there are a couple of problems with it. The first is that I know people who've been really at peace with decisions that are completely against God's word. We've got to be careful of making peace in our hearts the main measure for doing God's will, don't we? It's possible for for us to be really at peace with doing something that's completely disobedient. The second problem with this idea is that sometimes doing God's will does not bring peace. At least not initially, isn't it? Sometimes doing God's will is really quite unsettling. It's the narrow path that leads to life. And so we've got to be careful about saying, well, if this is God's will, I'll feel really at peace about it. Uh, Another dominant way is that we uh, we look for open doors, don't we? If God keeps opening these doors, then, then it must be God's will. That's how I discern the voice of God, and I'm once again completely fine with that. The Bible does talk about God opening doors, uh, but not every open door is a sign of God's will. You know, I think uh, some of us uh, you might be familiar with the Book of Jonah, the story of Jonah. What has God says to Jonah explicitly? Go to the city of Nineveh, you know, preach to them that they might repent and escape my judgment. And if you know the story, Jonah doesn't want to do that. He wants to go to Tarshish. Uh, And so he goes down to the local port and what do you know? There's a ship that's going to Tarshish. What an incredible open door of opportunity. It must be God's will, you see. Not at all. God clearly said, go to Nineveh, but there's an open door. See, we must be careful about assuming that every open door is a sign of God's, uh, God's will to us. So how is it that we listen to God's Spirit? How, how do we discern God's will? Oh, I think the most reliable way is to look at God's Word. And by saying that, I don't mean uh, that that kind of like uh, Bible lottery type vibe where you, you sit there and the Bible and you sort of pray, dear God, please guide me about what to do in this situation. You open up at a random page and kind of plonk, plonk your finger somewhere. You're like, that must be the will of God for my life, right? That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about how God shapes us through his word by the power of his spirit so that increasingly we become the people that he wants us to be and therefore we do the things that he wants us to do. A guy named J.D. Greer wrote a book called Jesus Continued About the Holy Spirit, and this is what he says in part of his book. He says, The scriptures spend more time on the type of people we should be and less time on the specifics of where or what we should do. Isn't that frustrating? Right? The Scriptures spend more time on the type of people we should be and less time on the specifics of where or what we should do. And so the idea is that as we progressively become the people that God wants us to be, we'll progressively do the things that He wants us to do. And we see this in particular, if you want to flick to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, there are a number of verses we could have looked at. Uh, But Romans 12, verses 1 and 2 is is a good place which brings these ideas together. Uh, Romans 12, I'll read from verse 1. Uh, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, uh, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Uh, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, Paul says, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, uh, because then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. So you see, you see Paul's train of thought in this passage. He says, become the person that God wants, me, he wants you to be. In response to his grace and mercy to you in the gospel, worship him appropriately in a true and, and proper way. Uh, which is really to say, give your whole life to God, because in Christ, he gave his whole self for you. Worship him rightly. Uh, Don't be conformed to the patterns of this world, he says. Don't just go with the flow of our culture on absolutely everything, uh, but be transformed by the power of God's word and his spirit, that your mind would be renewed, Uh, And because he says, then you'll be able to discern God's will, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And this is the dominant thrust of the New Testament. Become the person that God wants you to be by the power of his word and his spirit and increasingly you'll do the things that God wants you to do. Not because he gives you a special revelation at the moment or provides an open door necessarily or gives you a particular piece in your heart, but just because you're becoming more like Christ. Right? So I think this is a, a, an important implication for the fact that we experience God's Spirit in His Word. We want to know God's will for your life, God's will in this particular situation. Uh, On one level, I want to say just get busy becoming the person that God wants you to be. Uh, We experience God's Spirit in His Word. Uh, The other points might not be quite this long. Uh, We experience God's Spirit in the Gospel. That's the second thing. So the Gospel uh, being the core message of God's Word. Really, the, the, the message of what, the good news of what God has done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, this, I want to look at Galatians chapter 3. Uh, it's there in the connect card, Galatians 3. and In particular, we'll look at verses 1 and 2. Uh, in this passage, if you're not familiar with Galatians, in this passage, Paul's reminding the Galatians of how they first became Christians. Right? How is it that they first received God's Spirit into their life? Uh, so have a look there in verse 1. He says, Before your very eyes, uh, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. Now, obviously that didn't happen literally. Well, maybe not obviously, but but these uh, believers in Galatia, uh, they weren't in Jerusalem when Jesus was crucified. So it's not that they saw Jesus crucified. How is it that Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified? It's in verse 2. It's through what they heard, Paul says. So Paul's saying that that as he preached the gospel to these people in the power of God's Spirit, uh, they saw Christ crucified, uh, not just in an abstract and general way, they saw Christ crucified for their sins. Christ was kind of vividly portrayed before them. Uh, They were captivated by Christ so much that they put their faith in him. They believed in the gospel. Uh, And so at the end of verse 2, Paul says, uh, as a result of hearing and believing the gospel, uh, they received God's Spirit. Uh, How do we experience God's Spirit? Uh, Not primarily by asking for God's Spirit, but by believing the gospel. That's how we received the Spirit in the first place, uh, and that's how God's Spirit continues to be active in our life. It's as we, as we turn away from our sin and put our trust in Christ that God's Spirit continues to work. Uh, and By believing the gospel, I don't just mean believing it in a kind of box-ticking intellectual way. I, don't, I mean believing it in, in a deeply uh, experiential way. As the Spirit of God makes the truths of the gospel come alive in your life. That's the work of the Spirit. Oh, I see this in my own story. Right? I grew up in a Christian family. Oh, I, uh, my family, a bit like the Martins, you know, where we used to look at the Bible together. Oh, I knew John 3.16, for example. Right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever shall believe in him will, have eternal, uh, will not perish, but have eternal life. Oh, I, I knew lots of stuff, but there was a particular point where God's Spirit made the truths of the gospel come alive in my heart. Many of you have experienced this. Where you knew not just that Christ died for sins in general, but that Christ died for your sins. Or you saw Christ crucified on the cross and you knew that that wasn't just a nice historical curiosity, but that he had to do that for your sins. That's the work of the Spirit. I knew that not just that God loves people in general in a vague, amorphous, kind of abstract way, but that God loved me. He loved me so much that he sent his son to die for me. And so all of a sudden, the, the truths of the gospel come alive in, my, in your heart. In, they came alive in my heart. And Paul's saying, that's what happened for the Galatians. They saw Jesus Christ clearly uh, before them. Christ crucified for their sins. Uh, I wonder if that's happened for you. Like, uh, Are you familiar with this work of the Spirit? Uh, perhaps you're someone who believes in a kind of intellectual way that Christ died for sinners. Are you quite comfortable ticking that box? Uh, but has the Spirit opened your eyes to see the fact that, that, that Christ died for your sins? That you're so sinful that the glorious Son of God had to die for you, had to be crucified for you and your sins? many professing believers believe, at least on some level, that God loves sinners. But they could never believe that God loves them. Has God's Spirit opened your eyes to see that God loves you? That he sent his Son to die for you? In that sense, that there is a sense in which there can be believing and believing or different types of knowing. I don't say that to kind of cause you to be all introspective and kind of doubt your own faith. And if you've ever had a doubt, you know, you... you like a but there are different kinds of knowing. And, and the Spirit of God does bring a deeper kind of knowing into the life of a genuine Christian. Uh, Jonathan Edwards uh, kind of... Has a particular illustration to try and capture these different types of knowing. Uh, he talks about, he says, uh, imagine that there's someone who has never actually tasted honey before. Really, there's someone who's never actually tasted honey, honey uh, but someone's told them that honey is sweet. Well, that's a type of knowledge, isn't it? Right, that they, they know that honey is sweet. But then one day, someone actually gives them some honey and it's kind of, as the honey, the sweetness of the honey sits on the the taste buds on their tongue, it's like their whole head's exploding with sweetness. There's this wonderful experience of the sweetness of honey that they've never had before, even though they always knew that honey was sweet. And Jonathan Edwards says that's what it's like when the Spirit of God brings the truths of the gospel home to someone's heart. You may have always known that Christ died for sinners, but you'd never really tasted the bitterness of your own sin that put Christ on the cross. And more importantly, you may have always known that the, uh, about God's love and grace and mercy. You'd heard, God's, uh, you'd heard people in churches speak about that. You'd heard your friends speak about it. Uh, but for the first time, by the power of God's Spirit, you actually taste the sweetness of God's love and grace and mercy. And it just explodes your will. That's the power of God's Spirit. We experience God's Spirit in His Word and we experience God's Spirit in the Gospel as the Spirit brings alive the truths of the Gospel. And finally, we experience God's Spirit in being assured that we're His dearly loved children. In some ways, this is a a subset of the Gospel point. Uh, This is the Galatians 4 passage. If you want to open up uh, or have your credit card open at Galatians 4. And really, in this passage, uh, Paul's really wanting us to get, on a deeper level, to taste uh, what it means to be adopted as one of God's children. That's his point in this passage. Um, And so you'll see there in the passage that the key illustration is that of a young child, or in particular a son, uh, who in reality is the heir of an incredible estate. He's got a great inheritance ahead of him. Uh, But in verse 1, you see there uh, that as as long as he's underage, Paul says he's no different from a slave. So there's a certain reality that he has this wonderful inheritance, uh, but while he's underage, he's no different from a slave. Why is that? Look at verse 2. It's because he's subject to guardians and trustees. Now, this probably doesn't make as much sense to us as it would have to the to the Galatians that Paul's writing to. Uh, in Greco-Roman culture, uh, a child was considered uh, to be completely underage until the age of 14, and then it wasn't until the age of 25 that they were excuse me that they were, that they were free from all guardians and trustees. And it was when they were 25 that they can enjoy the, the full uh, kind of the full privileges of the estate. So what's Paul getting at here? Right, he's obviously making a spiritual point when he uses this illustration, when he speaks about a child who's underage, a child who's really no different from a slave. So there are three different ways you can look at it. We're going to land on the third way, but I'll tell you the first two. Just So the first way you could look at it, look at it is that Paul's giving us here a picture of Israel. A picture of God's people, uh, and he's saying that that under Moses' leadership, God promised his people uh, wonderful freedom and intimacy with him. The kind of thing that a child would experience with their father. Uh, And in fact, in Exodus, God calls Israel his son. But the reality is that for the average Israelite, they didn't enjoy the fullness of that freedom and intimacy. so, So maybe Paul's giving us a picture of God's people Israel. On one level, he is. Uh, Second, it could be a picture of every single human being on the planet. If you have a look at verse 3, I think this is true. He says there in verse 3, So also, when we were underage, uh, we were in slavery, and this is this random phrase, slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. That's a really bizarre phrase, isn't it? What does that mean? Uh, I I think uh, what Paul's saying is is that there's a basic unifying uh, spiritual principle that ties together all of humanity. Uh, And that basic principle uh, is that apart from Christ, all of us are spiritually enslaved. What are we enslaved to? We're enslaved to try to prove ourselves to God and others. That's the the basic, fundamental position of every human being on the planet. No escaping from it. And one way or another, we're trying to prove ourselves to God, prove that we're in the good box, not the bad box, if you like. Prove that we're saints rather than sinners, uh, or in a different sense, uh, to make a name for ourselves, you see, to justify our existence, to, to, to show everyone that we're a somebody, not a nobody. That's the default position of all human beings. So maybe Paul's giving us a picture of all human beings. Uh, Third, uh, I think he's giving us a picture of how some Christians experience their relationship with God. Perhaps how the Galatians were relating to God. Uh, The reality that despite being children of God many Christians can still relate to God as if they're a slave and, and that he is their master. The, the kind of mindset here would, would be something like, uh, sure, I accept that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, so I'm no longer condemned for my sins, but now I've got to spend the rest of my life earning God's blessing and grace and favour, you see. So that there's no negative negativity coming from God, but there's also no positivity unless I earn it through my own works. Uh, And so in this passage, Paul's trying to show that not only has God given us the status of being his children, but he's given us everything we need to, to, as it were, come of age as his children and enjoy all the benefits of being his children. Does that make sense? Not just the status, but the full experience of being his children. That's what God has done for us in Christ. So if you look in verses 4 and 5, he explains how God has done that through the work of his Son. Look at verse 4. He says, uh, But when uh, the set time had fully come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Right. So God sent his Son, uh, born of a woman. That's, that's just a Paul's way of saying Jesus really was a human being. Right? Born, uh, uh, and born under the law. Uh, which is to say, like all human beings, Jesus was obligated to obey God's law. Jesus did obey God's law. So why did God send his son? Why did he send him? Look at verse 5. He sent him to redeem those under the law. To redeem. Uh, Here in Australia, uh, everyone who lives in Australia lives under Australian law, don't they? Uh, So if uh, you break a a law of the Australian government, uh, sometimes the consequence of that is, well, nearly always, but sometimes it it comes as a, a financial penalty Know, you your speed, you get a financial penalty in the, in the post or some other way, right? And of course, if you don't pay those penalties, uh, in the end, you accumulate a massive debt to the Australian government. And what Paul's saying here, that it's a little bit like that for every single human being. Every human being is born under God's law. And of course, all of us disobey God's law in many times, in various ways, every single day. Uh, and so there's a penalty that must be paid, that, that penalty, the, 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 our spiritual debt to God, uh, just accumulates more and more every day of our lives. And what Paul's saying here is that in Christ, in sending his son, God paid off that debt in full. You know, it's as if you had you know, 20,000 parking tickets and you owed this massive debt to the local council. Uh, and then one day you just get a notice that says, paid in full. Right? That, that, that's what Christ has done, Paul's saying. God sent his son to redeem us from all of our spiritual debts. Why did God do that? Why did he want to redeem us? Look at the end of verse 5. God wanted to redeem us because uh, that we might receive adoption to sonship. So God sent his son to redeem us so that we'd no longer be slaves, Right, trying to uh, pay off our spiritual debt to God through our own good works, uh, but that we'd be sons, children of God, uh, assured that we are indeed his children, that our status might change from slaves to sons to children of God. Now that all sounds great, doesn't it? I hope it does. Like your, your status, if you're a Christian, is that of a child of God. If you're here and you're not a Christian, that's the status that's held out to you. But think back to the start of, the, of this passage. What good is it being a son, a, a child, uh, if really you're no different to a slave? You, the, you don't experience the blessings of being a child. What good is that? So God sent His Spirit. Well, that's why God sent His Spirit. Verse 6, Paul says, because you, are sons of, uh, because you are His sons, God sent the Spirit of the Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So God sent His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for us, to secure for us the status of being His children. And then God says, no, that's not enough. I send my spirit to secure for my children the full experience of being my children. Not just a kind of intellectual status that you can tick and say, yes, I know I'm a child of God, but the the full experience of being a child of God. It's a little bit like when Jesus was baptized in the Gospels. When Jesus is baptized in water and the Holy Spirit comes down from heaven, and the, and the voice from heaven says, You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And Paul's saying that's what happens when someone becomes a Christian. God sends his son into their heart to assure them, this, You are my child whom I love. With you I am well pleased. So assured by God's spirit, Paul says, We cry out to God. We call to him. We cry out to him. This is, this is what uh, the, the life of a spirit-filled Christian looks like. You know, my kids, uh, if they fall over and hurt themselves, uh, they just cry out to me. No inhibitions. right? No regulation on how loud they're going to be. They just cry out to me because they know I'm their dad. Right? And the reason they do that is because, because for the most part, they know that I'm there. You know, that's the mark of a Christian who's filled with God's Spirit. A Christian has a deep sense that their Heavenly Father is present with them. Their Heavenly Father's with them, and so they can cry out to Him at any moment. I don't know about uh, you, uh, perhaps you're a child, uh, and you cried out to your parents, or maybe you've got children. Uh, certainly my children almost never cry out to me as Father. You know, they fall over, Father! That you know, just doesn't happen, right? They cry out to me as Dad, or Daddy, or even Dadda, Charlie runs with sometimes, right? right? And that's what Paul's saying here. That the God gives us a, a special kind of intimate, it's not just formal. Paul says, we, we, uh, the Christian who's filled with God's Spirit cries out to God as Abba, Father. Right, Abba, of course, has nothing to do with the Swedish rock band. Uh, like that word Abba, right? It's, it's a word like papa, daddy. Now, you might not. I'm not saying that you should go around and start calling God daddy every time you pray. But it's giving us a picture of the level of affection and intimacy that God wants us to have with him as his children. So, the first mark of a Christian who's filled with God's Spirit uh, is this deep assurance of God's love for them. His love for them as as one of his children. What might this? I'm uh, just trying to give you a picture of what this might look like. Um, imagine that I'm walking along the you know walking along the path, and and imagine this is Charlie here, right? I'm I'm holding, and in that moment you see us walking along, and Charlie's status, of course, is that of my son. Right? But if I was to pick Charlie up in my arms and give him a hug. And hold him close to me and give him a kiss and, and whisper in his ear, Charlie, you are my son whom I love. And I love you, uh, not because of everything you do, like ticking all the right boxes. I love you just because of who you are. I'm pleased with you. You don't have to earn that. It's just an unconditional, unconditional gift. If I did that, I reckon that Charlie would feel more my son. Of course, he was always my son. That status was always there. But that's the experience, right? That's the work of God's Spirit. That's what Paul's saying here. The work of God's Spirit brings alive our status as children of God. It brings it to our hearts. It assures us of his love for us as his children. And verse 7, the Spirit also uh, assures us of our privileges of God's children. God's love for us as his children and our privileges as his children. Look in verse 7 there. Uh, Paul says, So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Uh, when I was in primary school, I had a friend, at least for a period of time, uh, who, whose dad was the principal of the school, right, which had its pros and cons. Uh, but his dad, one of the things I noticed about my friend uh, is that he walked around the school with absolute confidence and assurance, Where where did that come from? It came from the fact that his dad ran the place. You know, he walked around, chest puffed out, head held high, because his dad ran the joint. And Paul's saying that as Christians, God gives us his spirit uh, so that we would know deeply and profoundly that our Heavenly Father doesn't just run some school, but he runs the entire universe. Our Heavenly Father doesn't just run the universe, he owns the universe. He created it, he made it, it belongs to him. And so as children in his family, we are heirs of everything. So that that means that as a Christian, whatever's going on in your life, you can walk around with your head held high because your Father runs this place. He owns the place. And you're an heir of all things. So this is the incredible privilege of being a child of God, Paul says. So how is it that we experience God's Spirit? What would uh, a Christian who's experiencing the power of God's Spirit look like? Or or a church who's experiencing the power of God's Spirit? As I said, there's more that could be said. But these things are also true. We experience God's Spirit in His Word, uh, in the Gospel, and in being deeply assured of God's love for us as His children uh, and the privileges that we have as His children. Uh, Let me pray. Our gracious heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you that each and every part of your word has uh, indeed been breathed out by you. It is chock full of your spirit uh, to to bring us to know Christ and to make us more like Christ. I do pray, Father, for anyone who might be here today who uh, does not know you as their heavenly Father. Uh, I pray that this day they might trust in the work of your Son, uh, whom you sent to redeem them, uh, from, uh, from the debt that they owe you. And I pray that they might experience the work of your Spirit, whom you sent, uh, that they might cry out to you, Abba, Father. I pray for uh, those of us here who do have the status of your children through trusting in the work of your Son by the power of your Spirit. And I pray, Father, uh, this day, even in this moment, uh, you might increase our assurance of your great love for us, And Father, you might remind us and assure us of of the real privileges we have as your children. Uh, That you, our Heavenly Father, own and run this entire universe. Uh, So that as your children, we are heirs of all things. Please do this work in our hearts and minds, Father, I pray, by the power of your Spirit. Amen.